Hello, Malcolm here, and thank you for watching the video or listening to the podcast of the Watford Church of Christ. We're currently preaching and teaching through our five church aspirations, as we call them, to be God-focused, to be relationship-based, to enable our children to become Christians, to be always free but spiritual, and fifthly, to toil to build the church well. And those spell great. We want to be a great church to God's glory. So we're beginning 2018 by focusing on these, preparing our hearts and minds to be ready for the year ahead. If you've got any thoughts on any of these topics, then please leave a comment, contact us via the Facebook page, the website, the Twitter feed, and so on. We hope you enjoy what you're about to see and hear. What does it mean to be free? Now, to answer that question, it depends on what exactly you're asking. Freedom can mean different things at different times in, to different people in different circumstances. So as an example, when my wife is feeling tired and stressed, freedom could be when my five-year-old son finally goes to sleep. But my five-year-old son has told us more than a few times that he really hates sleep because when he's sleeping, all he does is just lie down and do nothing. So while my wife is excited that she's finally free, my poor five-year-old son might think his fundamental human right to play has been taken away from him. If in the last 10 seconds you thought for a moment, you wondered how many calories this is, if that was the first thing that came to your mind, then it's very likely that you're not free. (laughs) And you might not know when you lost, might have lost your freedom, but for me, I know exactly when it happened. It was in December 2016. Before that time, I was a happy guy, and one day I got a text from NHS saying I needed to come for some routine health check. Now, I'm not sure why they sent me that text, but it's either because I turned 40 the year before, or because for seven years before that, I had never gone to GP. And for five years, I didn't even know I was not registered with a surgery. So there I was thinking I was doing a great job helping reduce the average running cost of NHS. But then they wanted me to come for the routine test. And I was reluctant at first, but I had to go because my wife really wanted me to go. And then after the test results came out, the doctor gave me a sheet of paper, which at first glance would have looked like the menu from my favorite restaurant with all the items I loved eating. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. It was a list of the things I needed to avoid or cut down because the test revealed that my cholesterol was quite high. So, oh well, (laughs) yeah. I don't think you're free. So, no matter what freedom means, freedom, being free is a desirable state. It's a state where we all want to be at. And if at any point we feel that our freedom is being, we have to restrict our freedom for any reason, it can be a bit challenging and difficult. And that is what lies at the heart of our sermon today. The title of the sermon is Always Free But Spiritual. Over the next 20 or so minutes, I'm hoping we'll be able to understand what it means to be free as a Christian and also understand how we should react to circumstances where we might have to give up our freedom for benefits, possible benefits we'll talk about. So if you please turn to Galatians chapter 5. 
So I'll start, I'll read just verse 1 there. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. So as I prepared for this sermon, I struggled a bit. I struggled to really try and get the concept of what it meant to be free, because there seems to be different ideas explained in the New Testament. And after reading through a couple of verses, I, I came to realize that the two types of freedom that have been spoken about. Now, for the lack of words to explain it, you're not going to find this in any text. I'm going to call the first type of freedom primary freedom. And to understand that or to talk more about that, if you can just go to Romans chapter 6, verse 6 to 7. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So this type of freedom is what I like to refer to for this sermon as primary freedom. And by that, I basically mean this is the core of Christianity. This is the overall essence of Christianity. This is the reason why Christ died. Christ died to set us free from the slavery of sin. Christ's crucifixion meant that we could finally be reconciled with God. Before that, we were not free. And this is further explained in Hebrews chapter 10, and you don't have to turn there, from verses 19 to 22, where it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So this freedom for me means being free from guilty conscience, having that freedom to contact God directly, like the Bible says here. As far as I'm concerned, the primary freedom is really what is most important because it cuts across Christianity, no matter where you're from, no matter what country you're in. This is the basis of being a Christian. Without that, Christianity doesn't exist. Without the fact that Christ died, none of this, we wouldn't even be here. And the fundamental part of this type of freedom is faith. Because the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to, free, um, to please God. And if you think of all the things it talks about, confidence to pray to God, all of, all, of, all of that has faith right as its core. Because without faith, you can't, be, you can't have that confidence to understand that God listens to you. So that's one type of freedom. So the question is, if this is all that is really important, why are we even talking about any other type of freedom? What's the point of this so-called secondary type of freedom? And the short answer to that is that we're not in heaven yet. And I believe I, I should explain a bit more. I owe a bit more explanation. So for the core part of our, our discussion today, or sorry, of, our, of the sermon today, I'd like us to please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 23. And I'm going to read to the end. 
So from verse 23, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, but for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another person's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in, in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that many may be saved. So just to get a bit of background here, what was happening in Corinth is that um, the people in the city worshipped a lot of um, idols. So they had a lot of different gods. And what would happen is at different points in time, people would offer sacrifices to the idols. And when the sacrifice is offered, some of it is burnt at the altar. And the rest of it, the rest of the meat that was used for the sacrifice is given to the person who offered the sacrifice. And you could do anything with it. So some people could take it home and eat it, and others would actually sell it in the meat market. And for the Christians in the city, this was a bit of a problem because there was a chance that if you went to visit someone and they served you food, it might have been food that was offered and sacrificed. But then even if you didn't go to visit someone, you went to the market to buy meat, it could be meat that was offered and sacrificed. So there was this moral um, problem for, for the Christians asking, is it right or is it wrong to eat this meat that has been offered to other gods, given that we're Christians? And there were basically two groups of, um, two groups of <coughs> Christians with two different points of views. Now, talking about meat offered to, in sacrifice might be lost on a lot of us because this is clearly not an issue we have in the society here today, well, in this country. But if you grew up like me in Nigeria, then you probably would have first-hand experiences of this. In fact, growing up, I had a lot of experience firsthand, and I haven't had circumstances like this at home. So just a little story about my background. I grew up, when I was growing up, I lived in an extended family. And so apart from my parents and four of my sisters, um, I had my dad's elder sister. She was much older than my dad, so my, because of the big age difference, she was actually old enough to be my dad's mom. So my dad didn't call her his sister. My dad called her mom. And so because to my dad she was like mom, we didn't call her our aunt, who she really was. So we called her a name which in English will translate, if you translate it directly, to little grandma. So we called her little grandma. Now little grandma had three daughters who were about my dad's age. So we called her daughters our aunts even though they were cousins. I'm giving you all these details, so it'll be easy to tell the story later. And her daughters, at the time, between them had seven kids. 
So, and all of, all of us lived in the same house. But besides those seven kids, we had a lot of other relatives. And to be honest, till now, I don't really know exactly how we were related, but we're just cousins. So over the period I lived at home, till I left at 23, we had, at any point in time, between 25 and 30 people in my house who lived there. So this is the background. Now my mom, my parents were Christians, my dad Anglican, um, but he was not really that strict, as a lot of men his age at that time were. But my mom, um, even though she started as Anglican, started going to a Pentecostal church because, again, a lot of women of her generation believed there was a need to protect the family with prayers. And the types of prayer life in Anglican churches just didn't hold it for them. So they had to go to Pentecostal churches where there's a lot of fasting and praying. So, but little grandma did not go to church. She didn't believe in God, but she served like the traditional African gods. So in our house, in one part of our house, we had a few shrines. And there were different gods. There were about three or four of them. There's um, the god of water, or god of the sea, or goddess of the sea. I think that was a goddess. And then there's a god of iron. And there's another one called the god of thunder and lightning. And each of them had a shrine. And at different points in the year, there will be a sacrifice to the gods. And this is usually a big event. It's like celebrating Christmas. So there will usually be a lot of good cooking, and the food was very good. Like, you'd, you'd slaughter like goats and chickens and cook something really nice. But my mom, because she was really strict, did not believe it was right to eat that. But my dad was Libra. My dad felt, listen, all the gods are friends. You can eat anything. And so that was my dad's point of view. So, so when little grandma offered the sacrifices and they've prepared the food and she brought some to my mom, my mom would gladly accept with a smile. But the smile was more like what you get if, you, if you're speaking to a customer service rep. So it's that smile that fades away the moment the person turns away. And then she would accept it and then look at us and give us the look. Now, most African children understand this look. The look is basically it's the same but depending on the context, you can interpret the meaning without your mom talking to you. And that look was basically, touch this food and I'll kill you. <laughs> so, so that was the situation. But then my dad would come back home, and because he didn't mind, he would just start eating, and it, the food was good. So we had my dad, who was completely free, and he felt, I could eat this. If you kids want to join me, you can. But we knew that my mom would kill us. He didn't mind. So this was basically the situation. And if you were in a church in Nigeria, these are the types of circumstances you'd face. And I think in a way, it's similar to what these churches here um, faced. Now, what the Bible is saying here is that these issues, whether or not is you eat food sacrificed to idols, there were two schools of thoughts. And Paul was saying, the summary of what he said is that it doesn't really matter what school of thought you are. But I call, but he did address these issues in, um, I think it's Romans chapter 14, verse 1, where he talks about um, disputable matters. And by this, he meant that these were matters that different people could have different points of views, even though ultimately it didn't matter, but it was important to address them. And while 
food sacrifice to idols might not be relevant in our own case. We do, have, we do face issues like this all the time. So a good example was Danny's sermon last week where we talked about parents raising kids. And the men discussed this on, on Wednesday. And Leon made a point, an important point, that the parenting style would be a function of what your views are, how you were raised by your parents, and all these things play into decide how different people would raise their, their kids. So the question is, what is the right way for a, a Christian to raise their kids? And people have different points of views. And there are lots of other matters that could fall in this category. Some of them could be, what type of music is appropriate for a Christian to listen to? Should a Christian listen to Tupac and Eminem? Is it right or is it wrong? What type of TV program should a Christian watch? How much TV is okay for a Christian to watch? What about Valentine's Day? Is it right or is it wrong? Of course, February 14 is coming up, so I, I don't think it's right, guys. <laughs> so, so a lot of, a lot of these issues are, are real issues. They're important because I call them secondary issues of freedom because as we saw in the two groups that um, Paul identified, so we had one group of Christians who thought it was okay. And to understand that a bit more, if you go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So I'll read from verses 4 to 8 in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no, one, there is no God but one. For even if there, were so -called, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven, in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father for whom all things, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial foods, they think, they, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and not better off if we, if we don't. Sorry, we're no worse off if we do not eat and we're not better if we do. So basically, Paul is saying here that he identified two groups. So there's a group of Christians who, who believed that it was okay because as far as they're concerned, there's one God and all these other gods, they're not real. And if I'm going to eat anything, it's just food anyway. It doesn't matter. I'm just eating food. And he refers to these Christians as being more mature than having a strong conscience. And then the other group, he refers to them as having a weak conscience. Now, it is important to note that when he talks about weak conscience, he's not talking about their conscience as Christians, but only in that subject matter. So it's not saying, oh, these, are, these Christians are weak. And there will be valid reasons for that. It would probably be because of their background. It would probably be because of how they felt when they got converted. So Paul is not saying any of these groups is better off than the other. But he's just saying it doesn't really matter. And that's why I call it the secondary, secondary group of freedom. Because fundamentally, it's not 
what makes us saved or not. But it is important to address it because it can have adverse effects. It can have effects in relationships. It can have effects in how people leave us Christians. And that's why in the, in the main text we read earlier, Paul basically talks about what they should do. And there are two, two categories of advice he gives. So the first one, which will be my first point for today, is do not let your, um, your freedom or the lack of it hinder the gospel. And for this one, if we go back to the main text, you don't have to turn there, we've already read it, um, but in, in verse 27 it says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, go and eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Now this particular one is actually addressed to the group of Christians with the wicked conscience. And basically what he's saying is that if you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, don't sweat the small stuff. And the reason why it's important not to ask those questions of conscience, I believe, is that those would normally be issues that are strong in people's hearts. And as it's not fundamentally important, bringing it up would most likely lead to an argument because what you're trying to preach is the gospel, but because, quote-unquote, of your weak conscience, you're thinking, oh, I hope this guy doesn't eat food, sacrifice to idols. You bring it up, and then you get into an argument of whether or not I'm right or he's right. And the thing is, you can never win an argument. The reason why you can win an argument is that somewhere inside of all of us, we have some pride. Everybody wants to get his point out. And as a result of that, rather than making the most of an opportunity, you'll end up straining a relationship, and that can get in the way of, of um, spreading the gospel. That said, Paul now goes on in another verse to say, however, um, just give me a minute. So... <coughs> Okay, so it says, if it's been offered, let's see if an unbeliever invites you. Yeah, okay, in verse 28 it says, but if someone says to you, this food has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. So this is quite an important point, and I think it's directed a bit more to the people who, have, who are more liberal. And he's saying, so you're there, you're going to, maybe you're reaching out to this guy and he gives you food, you're about to dig in and start eating and says, oh, by the way, this was offered in sacrifice. So it says in that case, you shouldn't eat it. And I think why that's important is if you try and think of the reason why someone would, would bring up that matter, it could be a, a, poss a few reasons. It could be that their conscience makes them think perhaps there's an issue here. And if someone is already on the fence and is wondering, is it okay, and this person isn't a Christian yet, and you continue to just go ahead, then you're putting them in a, condition, in a situation that makes it a bit more difficult. And that's why it says, not for the sake of your conscience, but for the other person's conscience. And I think this is explained a bit more in, um, in, verse, in chapter 8. 
of 1 Corinthians, and that will be in verses 9 to 11. Again, you, should, you don't have to go there. So it goes on to say, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And I think the weak in this case could refer to someone who is not yet a Christian and someone who is already a Christian with, with the weak conscience, as, as Paul described it. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating at an idol's temple, wouldn't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So Paul is saying basically, he has each of the groups. So for the, the people with the strong conscience, you should be careful that exercising your conscience doesn't stay in the way when you're reaching out to someone. But for the others who, who believe that, who have an issue and say, oh, I don't think this is right, don't let that get in the way of, of spreading the gospel. And then the second um, issue that Paul addresses is directed more to Christians in the church already. And basically what he's saying is that you should use your freedom to build up, not to tear down. And at the beginning of um, our main text, what Paul says is that I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And I think the summary of this will be that you shouldn't put your relationship at risk just to make a point. And the reason for this is when people have issues like this or when people ha have strong beliefs like this, it is something they believe so strongly. Now, even if you're very good at getting your points across and you win an argument, even though you can't win, you might actually lose a friend. And I think about this when I go back to the example back home. So when little grandma brought the food, if my mom was home, we wouldn't eat from it because she would really be upset. But there were a the few times, well, the food was good, to be honest. And personally, I didn't think it was bad to eat it. That's what I thought. So if my mom wasn't home when little grandma brought the food, and it was only my dad, my dad would offer some of it to us, and then I would eat. And then when my mom came back, I could see a part of her die when she saw that I did that. Because to her, that is almost like signing a pact with the devil. That was to her like, I've told you this many, many times before. I go to church to pray for you to keep this family protected. And you're still getting involved in things like this. So as far as she was concerned, it was, it was as bad as getting, getting, becoming an idol worshiper. And... It took me a while to figure this out, and there were lots of other issues like this with my mom, and it took me a while to figure it out. Like, rather than trying to explain that, mom, you know that this doesn't really mean that I believe in this, it was a lot easier to not just eat it. Because if I didn't, then that conflict, for my dad, it didn't matter. If I didn't eat, he would say, okay, I'm going to keep this in the fridge. That's good food for me for one week. But for my mom, it was, it was very important to her. And I realized that just eating a meal puts the relationship with my mom at, at stress. Mm -hmm. 
So what's the point? And this can be the case as well in our relationships in the church. When someone has a strong point of view, someone believes strongly that this is, this is the right way to do something or it is wrong to do this, and from your own maturity, you know that that is not really the case. But you should address those issues carefully because in my time, I've seen people leave the church for reasons like this. I think about Nigeria as well, where you have so many church denominations and churches actually get broken because of these types of secondary issues of freedom. There are churches who believe that you should not have, the music shouldn't sound like worldly music or it's not proper worship songs. My dad would tell me if we're wearing jeans to church, if I was wearing jeans and I was leaving home, I would have to go back and change. I couldn't leave the home wearing jeans to church. And churches get broken for reasons like this, reasons like how should the music be done, what should people sing about. And it is, it is also the case in the church because people feel so strongly about this point. So the question now becomes, does it mean we should never talk about these issues where they exist? Because these are important issues and this could in long term, depending on how strongly someone holds on to them, it could actually affect their relationship with God. I think it's important to talk about them, and more importantly, I think we should talk about them. But when I think about, in business, the, the conventional rule is that you should, in order to have, improve your chances of winning, you should always negotiate from a position of strength. Now, but in issues like this, I think, Negotiating from a position of weakness gives you a better chance to win the other person over. And to explain this, I'll use again my mom as an example. So if my mom came home and, I was, and she saw me eating with a drumstick from, from the idol, right? That would not really, it's in the, holding the drumstick and saying, mom, you know that this is not really food sacrifice to idols, right? That would not be a, a good way to win her over. Yeah, it would be better off if I said, okay, I'm not going to eat this because I know this is what you believe, and then we can talk about it. And she's more likely to listen. And I think this is something we could apply in our relationships as well, where we find out that, okay, our points of views are different. Respect the other person's point of view, but it doesn't mean never talk about it. But by putting yourself in the same level, it's easier because one thing I learned about things like this is that when people believe strongly in something, you don't speak the same language. You're both in completely different worlds. And I've seen that with my mom. I saw it with my mother-in-law when, when we just had um, our first baby. So in Nigeria, there, there's some superstitious beliefs, right? So you have a baby and then the, for a while you have the umbilical cord and that clip and eventually it falls off. And in Nigeria, they believe you need to bury it somewhere in the garden or something would happen if you don't do that. And, but I, I didn't think so when I was in Nigeria. And then now I have my child, you know what? I'm just gonna throw it in a bin. <laughs> but then my mother-in-law was like, no, you can't do that. I was like, but mom, what is this? This is just, and we had this long argument and I realized at some point, you know what? What is it going to cost me to put it, to just bury it in the floor? It doesn't mean I'm signing a pact with the devil or anything, but then it means she, would, she wouldn't feel I've defiled her. She wouldn't feel that I have disrespected her. And then we have a good level to continue to talk. 
And I thought, you know what, rather than put this relationship at risk, why not just throw it there in the bin? It's going to go to the landfill anyway, so I might as well just throw it there. And, and, and that was quite helpful. And this is why for things like this, it is really important because in order to win people over, it's important to get them to see that, okay, I can relate with you. Then it's easier. That way, we wouldn't end up having constant conflicts. So I think that the freedom that brings us together as Christians is what I call primary freedom. That is more important. But the secondary freedom is a type of freedom that could actually take us apart. And it is important we think of how we can manage that. And it comes down to being humble. It comes down to not trying to make a point. I know sometimes I do it. I, I might not try to make the point directly, but I can do it sarcastically to say, oh, you really think that's going to affect your relationship with God? And, but I think it is important for us to have that attitude to change, to change this, to build our relationships. And to close out, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, So in this case, this was a different issue as well about circumcision and being circumcised and not being circumcised. And Paul says that for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So we, come, we became Christians because of our faith. And that is what really counts in terms of the primary freedom we have. And if we can express that faith by showing love and by listening, then we have a better chance of staying together because a house that is divided will just fall apart. And I think that is really important. So thank you very much for listening.